So open your Bibles if you have one. If you don't, I'm going to dismiss the kids in a moment. Um, you can grab one. They're in the back. If you don't have one, take it. It's yours. Uh, we're, we're looking at a book, a little book, a little epistle called Jude. If you don't know where that is, go to the back of your Bible. If you hit the maps, you went a little bit too far. But Revelation is the last book, and right before that is this little epistle named Jude. Our scripture lesson, uh, we go through, if you're new here, we go through books of the Bible primarily, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, keeping things in context, and then uh, bringing things to uh, uh, application. Um, so turn to Jude. I was going to read, I'm not going to read 1 through 13. Our scripture lesson really begins in verse 8. We've already covered the first um, seven verses. So pick up with me in Jude, uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 13, then we'll keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at the first couple of uh, verses as we um, uh, do an introduction, okay? Jude, verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams... Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, they shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Verse 13 to close. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's why we do expository preaching, because that would not be a verse. I'd be like, hey, let me preach on that this Sunday. <laughs> but God, add a blessing to the reading of his word. Every single word is given to us by inspiration and good and profitable. Amen? Amen. So kids, you're dismissed. Children's church. And the rest of us are in Jude. Lord, bless you as you go and teach us as they teach. And we're in a little book called Jude. Now, if you remember, Jude is the brother of James. It says that in verse 1. We also say that he's the half-brother, which means Jude and James is the half-brother of Jesus, the Christ. Mary and Joseph's children after the virgin birth. And Jude was in this process of communicating in this epistle to a church. And somehow along the way he got wind that somehow these false teachers had infiltrated the community with false teaching that perverted the grace of God. We see that in verse 4. So he's like, I, I'm scratching this letter. Who knows if he actually wrote one, if he was ready to write one. We don't know, but he says he was going to warn, tell them about the common salvation that they had. But he scratched it when he heard about these false teachers and... He wants to warn them now. That's what this letter is about. He's warning the church about these teachers that are coming in to the gathering and perverting the grace of God. The epistle opens up, as we said, with three divine graces that all Christians have received. In verse 1, the gospel call of God that, that awakens a dead heart to repent and believe and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the grave. It's the call that awakens. Heart that's been dead is alive and now repents and responds to the gospel. It's the call. Then we saw the eternal love of God. The love of God that stands behind the call of God. In his love, he has called us to himself. And then, of course, the keeping, saving power of God. That God's power, God's call, God's love will keep us, those who are genuine, to the end. In verse 2, we didn't see the divine graces. We saw divine blessings, a prayer of Jude, that God's mercy, God's peace, God's love would be multiplied to them. Mercy is God's compassion toward the needy. We are needy people. Peace is the interesting presence of God, knowing that God is sovereign in the midst of this trouble in the church. And then, of course, his love. And he prays that the love would be multiplied to them, that 
not that God loves you anymore, but that God's love would be understood, would be experienced with greater measure for the church. And we laid that foundation, the divine graces, the, the three blessings of prayer. Then we get to verse 3, because the gospel is the foundation of contending for the faith. Verse 3. We need to be assured that our salvation is secure, God's love is, is for us, and that we will make it to the end by his omnipotent power. So in the midst of this apostasy, in the midst of this false teaching, Jude is assuring them of the gospel, also letting them know that they ought to contend for the faith with mercy. We saw it at the end of the letter. We'll get to it. With mercy and kindness and, and love. Remember we said last week that contending for the faith is different than being a contentious person. Just want to fight all the time. That's not what Jude is saying. But there are things that we are to contend for. And that's what he says, verse 3. Beloved, tells them the gospel, shows them grace, shows them the mercy, and says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I, I, was, I wanted to do that. I found it necessary, and that means compelling, a uh, moral force, a uh, compelling, I had to write something to you, to appeal to you to contend that word contend is to defend vigorously, unstoppable, I mean, un, un, unending. I, I appeal to you to contend for the faith, the body of truth, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, contend for that body of truth that the apostles have received from the Lord Jesus Christ and written down in Scripture, primarily the gospel. De- defend that, uh, de- uh, contend for that. For, verse 4, the purpose, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, Long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They're perverting grace into this absence of, of restraint, this insoluble desire for pleasure. They, 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 they pervert the grace into sensuality and deny our master, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know who they were. He didn't call them by name. It would have been nice to say, you know, this guy, that guy, this cult, that cult. We don't know. Uh, that's probably a good thing. But we get a good description of the character and the conduct of these perverted men, women, who are perverting the grace of God. In our day, there are those who pervert the grace of God by taking the Scripture and going, I like this, I don't like that. I like this, I don't like that. There's also, which I mentioned last week, there's a movement called hypergrace, where teachers are teaching that you don't need to repent for sin. You don't need to repent from sin. You'll know when you read their books, they never talk about conviction. They never talk about believers repenting and confessing their sin, even though Jesus told five churches in Revelation to repent. They, they don't talk about that. Their emphasis is so much on the grace of God that they, they neglect and ignore the holiness, the fear of God, confession and repentance. Where is all that? Ricky and I, Pastor Ricky and I were talking this week and just marveling how God in his good providence brought us to this place dealing with antinomianism, this, this anti against the law that Jude is writing about, and how cool it was that we were in our series called uh, The Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, uh, Internal Gospel Growth, that we were fighting against legalism. See, if legalism is I live under the law, I, I work, I work, I try hard, I really want to obey God, I really want to do all this, and now God loves me and accepts me and, and he'll forgive me and I just got to keep doing this. Paul writes in Galatians that though, that's what it means to live under the law, under the burden of the law, relying upon the law for your justification. And how God now is dealing with us through Jude with antinomianism, that, which means against the law. See, they were perverting the grace saying that God's grace is so good that don't worry about what you do. Yeah, God's law has no place in your life. You don't need to know the moral standard of God. You're a Christian now. That was the problem. Well, two problems with legal. There's a problem with legalism and antinomianism. First of all, with legalism, Paul says that you, if you want to be justified by the law, you're going to fail. No one's justified by the law. Why? Because you don't keep it. We, I don't keep it. Can't be justified by the law because the law shows us our sin. Justification is by faith alone through Christ alone. Because Jesus is the only one who kept the law perfectly. And therefore, his death on the cross forgives us of our sins. And by faith, where imputed righteousness comes from, Jesus. It, it, it is his perfect life is counted toward our account. We're forgiven, made righteous in Christ, by faith alone in Christ alone. 
problem with antinomianism is the scripture has all kinds of commands. Jesus, I was just talking to uh, my mom the other day about worrying when Jesus said, do not worry. It wasn't like, hey, listen, if you, if you, if you think of it, I, this is a suggestion. I have a suggestion for you. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. So where does, where does, where does gospel, where does law, how does that all fit? Antinomianism, get rid of it. Legalism, live under it. Where, where does it fit? We talked a little about it last week, but I just want to, I want to chase this bunny trail just for a second, just for a second, because I just want to talk about that. I, I mentioned an article by Tim Keller, The Grace of the Law, last week. I just, I'm going to give you four things he mentions. I think he does six. I'm going to give you four. Four things that Tim Keller points out from Scripture on how law and gospel work together. What, what is the place of the law? And this is what he says. First, he says, we embrace the law of God in order to learn more about who God is. The point is, when God gives us a command, he is revealing himself. He says, be ye holy as I am holy. In Leviticus um, 19.2, he does the whole law and he says, be holy for I am holy. See the Ten Commandments in Leviticus 19. And he tells you, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you want to know me, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to know what I love, you want to know what I hate, if you want to know what my heart is like, you have to walk with me and listen to me and obey me. And you'll know me. God's law is not just some rules he writes on a board. It is a reflection of his character. Second, we embrace the law of God in order to discover ourselves. Deuteronomy talks about, Deuteronomy says, what does the Lord require? Fear God, walk in his ways, love him, serve the Lord, with, 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 serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Keep the commandments, the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you this day for your good. It's for your good. It's a gift. God's moral standard for our lives is a gift. It shows us uh, what we were built to do to worship him alone, to love our neighbors, to keep the truth, to tell the truth, to keep our promises. Forgive, act with justice. Third, we understand the law of God as fulfilled in Christ. We know from the Old Testament, and we know that Christ fulfilled the law, that the, that the, the, the ritual, the sacrificial, and the days and the years has been fulfilled in Christ. We don't, we don't keep them anymore. He is the temple he is the sacrifice. He is the lamb. He is the day of atonement. He is all the things and rituals of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills. Dietary, ceremonial laws in Christ. Fourth, we realize that the laws given the moral standard of God brings conviction. It is ultimately a gracious thing because when you read the law, the moral standard of God, when you read the Beatitudes, if you read the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus and you read those three chapters, you close the book and you go, I'm going to do that perfectly tomorrow. You're kidding yourself. It shows us our need for Christ. It's what's called a, uh, the Bible talks of being a, a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, Galatians 3. The law, the moral standard of God, Paul says, is spiritual, righteous, and good in Romans 7 leads us so see the law of god listen the law of god cannot and will not justify you because you can't fulfill it only jesus did you can't forgive yourself only jesus can the law of god cannot and will not justify you but it will and does help sanctify you again let me be clear you cannot obey your way into salvation. You cannot follow any other code of conduct in order to have a relationship with God. That's religion. The gospel is God loves, forgives, and accepts me because of the obedience of Christ. His death on the cross. And now because I am loved, I am forgiven, I am accepted. The love and mercy of God has been poured out on me through the gospel. And out of gratitude and love, I want to, I will obey my God. One is obedience into salvation, and the other one rests on the work of Christ into obedience. Man, that is a slippery slope. Luther says it's a default mode of every human heart. We want to go back to earning it. I got to do something. No, you can't. Christ already did it. Christ already did it. Jude is warning the church that, that God's grace is sufficient for your sin, but... God's grace also transforms the heart to walk in obedience to Christ. And he says, there are some in the church that are perverting the grace of God, verse four. 
And then he says, they are just like, and he gives three examples. Remember that? Verses 5 through 7, three narrative, three examples of past disasters where God had to judge uh, others. Verse 5, God judges his own people, the Israelites, and their rebellion. And they, you know, they delivered from bondage in Egypt, and then they rebelled, and they all died because of their unbelief. Verse 5. Verse 6 is the story of the angels, how they rebelled. They rejected authority. They wanted to be their own authority, and they too were judged. Verse 7 is the sad story of the Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment of fire that came upon the city for those who, it says, indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God's chosen, angelic beings, Gentiles. Covers it all. You're in there somewhere if you're here. Three examples. Three divine graces, three prayers, three examples, and he continues with his threes. First, we'll see the character and contrast of the era, verses 8 and 9. Then we will see the uh, depravity and devastation of the era, the false teachers, apostates, whatever you want to call them. And then last, the emptiness and eternity of the era, uh, and we'll go right into communion with that. Okay, so that's where we're going. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. Jude says there are a bunch of ungodly people who pervert the grace into sensuality, wanting lust, and they deny our master. And now let me tell you a little bit more about them. That's what he does in verse 8 and 9. He calls out their character and their conduct. And once again, Jude likes his threes. That's why I have three points. Defilement, disobedience, disrespectful. That's what they are. They, they, they defile the flesh, they're disobedient, they reject authority, and they're disrespectful. Look with me in verse 1, uh, verse 8. Defilement. Yet in like manner... The, the stories I just told you about the destruction, about Israel's unbelief, about the rejection of authority of the angels and the sexual immorality of the Sodomites, in like manner, these people, the one that are in your midst, example from the past, now I'm bringing it to reality, what's going on among you, these people also, yet in like manner, these people in your midst, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the holy ones. So, Somewhere along the line, Jude finds out that these people are perverting the grace of God, believing to have this authority, must have had some sort of dream. Some sort of dream. We don't mean like, I'm, I'm dreaming about the building expansion. I could see it in my mind. That's not what kind of dream he's talking about. Although I can't see it in the back of my mind. But he's talking about revelatory dreams. That's what he's saying. He, he, he's talking about... the. Uh, divine revelation, this authoritative dream that he had. In the Old Testament, God came, and I'm not saying he can't even do it today, to you in a dream. And he uses dreams, as, but not to write scripture, right? Those, those days are over. But in those, these days, the scripture wasn't written, so people are having dreams, and they're saying these dreams are real, and it gives me authority, and, and I, I, God spoke to me. Now, false prophets have been dreaming dreams for a long time. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were severely judged, criticized. Isaiah 56, you can read, Jeremiah 23, and Deuteronomy 13. Let me read Deuteronomy 13 to you. Listen to this. It's very interesting. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and, verse 2, the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. And keep his dreams? Nope. And keep his commandments and obey his voice? Scripture. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God and brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So purge the evil among your midst. We're going to put a pile of rocks outside. And when you want to tell me the Lord spoke to you in a dream and it's authoritative, just so you know, if it ain't true, let's go outside. Everybody grab a rock. There'll be a lot less dreamers today, for sure. They laughed more in the first over, but that's okay. (laughs) 
Just because somebody has a dream doesn't validate everything they're saying is true. It could have been the pizza they had last night. It could have been the movie they watched, right? They were using this, this dreams, it says, to justify their defilement of the flesh, which means they were committing some sort of, of, of sins, maybe, maybe from verse 7, we don't know. Some sort of sexual sins involving some sort of porneia, it's called, a sexual immorality. Maybe it's fornication, sex outside of marriage, adultery, lusting, same-sex. Whatever it is, it was outside the boundaries of the Word of God. And we see that today. Again, many churches and denominations are, are walking away from the clear teaching of Scripture. That God created sex for pleasure and procreation within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It's, it's, it's easier to say that than all the other stuff going on today. That's what God calls us to. And they're relying on their dreams. They're defiling their bodies. And what comes next, naturally or wickedly, is rejection of, the, of authority. You're in disobedience. Defilement is married to disobedience. Defilement of the flesh is married to disobedience. That which is improper. Now, interesting in this text is the word authority. You, you see it there in verse 8? Reject authority. The, the normal Greek word for authority is exousia, power, uh, uh, rule, dominion. Jesus taught with authority. That's the word. This word comes from the word kurios, which is Lord. They're rejecting lordship. That's what it means. They're, reject, they're not only rejecting revelation of Scripture and from the Word of God and the, and the voice of God, they are rejecting the Lord himself. They're, they're in rebellion and rejection of, of Christ, who he says is, denies them and is the only Lord and Master in verse 4. And here's the thing. If you want to be an authority, it's all about authority. If you want to be an authority, you have to be under authority. In order to be in authority, you have to be under authority. And the common way that people politely exercise their rebellion goes something like this, doesn't it? God told me so. I mean, I've been praying about it. God said I had this dream. I'm like, yeah, but the, the scripture, I know, but, you know, God, God said, and I'm like, no, no, it, it, no, God told me. I'm like, no, you're in rebellion. Because the Holy Spirit who empowered the writers of scripture doesn't violate the scriptures. The thing in which he authored doesn't make sense. And, and I told this to the first service. One of the things, and, and I told them the same thing, I, I live in a very, very small part of the world, right? I mean, I'm, I don't know, you know, if I know a few hundred people in my life. But from what I see, from what I read, from what I study, when people are into this new revelation and dreams, and it really is something that if you peel it back, you'll, you'll notice they're not under any authority, many of them. Many of them, they're their authority to themselves. They're not humble. They're, they're false dreamers, false teachers. And you peel it back, and, and really, they're their authority in of themselves as if they are bigger than life themselves. They don't want to submit to authority. And then when you really look into it, many of their lives is completely in disarray. And, and, and when people claim an extra-biblical source of authority, they just simply, one of the reasons is the attempt to justify their lifestyle. That's what was going on in Jude's day. They're perverting the grace. They had these dreams. They're rejecting authority. They're, they're defiling the flesh. They're saying, but, but the Lord told me. People want God without his will, the word. People want God not according to scriptures. They want responsibilities. They don't want responsibilities. They don't want obligations. They want Christianity without a commitment, without discipleship. It's a false gospel. They want the benefits of Christ's salvation without saying and hearing Jesus say, follow me. They defile the flesh. They disobey God by rejecting the truth. Now look how disrespectful they are. Look what it says. They also blaspheme, revile, speak a reproachable manner, the glorious ones. If you have an NIV, it says slander celestial beings. The text literally says slander glories, doxa. And the NIV, and I, and I think they're right, takes it as slandering angels, celestial beings. Because in Jewish Old Testament, New Testament, the scripture tells us the angels were involved when God came down on, on Mount Sinai to give of the law, the glory and the beauty of Christ, uh, God comes down, and the angels were involved in that role, in the giving of the law, and the glory of God coming down. Cherubims, we know where golden cherubims were seated on the, on the atonement cover in, 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 the, in, the, in the innermost sanctuary, innermost tent of meetings to, as a protection, a representation of, of the glory of God. 
So these false teachers, not only were dreaming dreams, rejecting authority, and, and, and defiling the flesh, they're like, don't tell me anything. I don't even want to hear about the angelic beings, the, the, those who serve and worship God, who are givers of the law. I don't want to hear it. It's about what I want. No voice can talk to me. No authority would tell me anything other than what I want. That's no humility. And look at the contrast. Look at the contrast, verse 9, with Michael's submission. He's battling the devil. Verse 9. But, but, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you're looking for that in Scripture, you won't find it. Jude is using what is called the Assumption of Moses, a non-canonical book, not not authoritative book, but takes a piece out of that, which shouldn't surprise you. Uh, He's going to do it next week in in, in Jude 14. Uh, Paul quotes uh, the, the pagan poets and philosophers in Acts 17. And Jude is grabbing from that body of that 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 writing and using it to illustrate truth richard lenski is a german new testament scholar uh 19th century he wrote this no matter whence i had to look up whence i didn't grow up in the king james right so i'm like no matter whence all right whence it sounds like when i'm like all right no it means place or source I, i looked it up No matter whence, place or source, or how an inspired writer, Jude, obtained his information, the Holy Spirit enabled him to sift out and adequately to present only what is genuine and true, end quote. Jude's like, I'm taking this. It's under inspiration now. It's in in the Bible. And the point that Jude is making is simply to contrast the attitude and reverence between the false teachers and Michael the archangel. It's not that Michael treated him with honor. Oh, I honor and respect you, devil. That's not the point. The point of contrast is that Michael did not reject the devil's claim on his own authority. He did it on his authority that was given to him by God. God is the ultimate judge. And even though the devil was motivated by wickedness, wanting the body of Moses and was slanderous, Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you. And we don't know why he wanted the body of Moses. If you read the end of Deuteronomy, it is, it's a strange the way Moses died. No one really saw it. No one really buried him. It says he was buried. He was up on the mountain with God alone. So it must have been something going on in the angelic world, in the spiritual world, and Michael was given some sort of responsibility, and Satan wanted his body, and probably just to show the world that he's dead, or maybe slander him, or mock him, or something of that nature. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael, the archangel, did not treat the enemy, the devil, flippantly, or or condescendingly. He, he, he He said, the Lord rebuke you, unlike the false teachers. You see... They're disrespectful. They're not humble. They're disobedient. They treat and pervert the grace of God. They're self-centered, self-focused. My will, my will only, all that matters. And family, let me tell you, I mentioned this last week. False teachers don't come in with red outfit and black horns and a pitchfork. Hey, can I sit here? You know, it doesn't work that way. They're infiltrating the church with their perversion of grace. You'll see here they're in the, the, the love feasts. So he's warning them. They, 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 while relying on dreams, they're defiling the body. They're, they're, they're disobedient, rejecting authority. They're blaspheming. They're disrespectful for those who present the glory of God. Number two, the depravity and, devita- look at, uh, uh, and devastation of the era. Look at verse 10. But these people, again, going back, he, he, he goes back and forth. But these people, the one that are in your midst blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively or by instinct you see at the heart of this false teaching is wrong thinking human depravity does not prevent us from using reason from using our minds but it it, it's used incorrectly without the spirit of God you know You hear it said, let your conscience be your guide. I'm wicked. My conscience is marred. I'm going to let the word of God be my guide and allow it to 
train and renew and correct my conscience. Oh, whatever your heart tells you, really, I'm wicked. That's not a good idea. That's how I feel. That's what the scriptures say. So Jude saying these heretics, they slander the things that they don't understand. I don't understand that. I don't want to bow to it. I want to be humble. I'm just going to slander those things. And the things that they do understand are understood by instinct, like unreasoned animals. That word is alogios. It comes from the word logos, word. And the A in front of it means they are without knowledge. They are outward. See what he's saying? He's saying they're acting like animals. They're acting like instinct in animals. That's what they're acting like. They claim to receive this revelation, this vision, this dream. They think they're the smart ones, but they're the ignorant ones. And their ignorance is so deep. It's like the, uh, 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 an animal being caught in a trap. I, I said, this, if, if you're an animal lover, I'm sorry. I love catching those little mice in the fall. I, my wife will tell you, I put, the, I put three or four of them, I put that peanut butter on a trap. I, I, get, I, I want on the head. Done. <laughs> put them right in where I know they're running. <laughs> Love it. And you hear it, click. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you turn the corner, you're like, sometimes you get two in one trap. That's really, like, awesome. But that's what he's saying. Like, they're laying the food out for the trap. They, they, they think they're telling you the truth. They're preferring grace. And you know what? God's going to cut them. It, the, the trap is going to come down. They're acting like animals. They're, 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 pardon the expression, but they're in heat chasing that dog. Nothing else matters. And that's the perversion. That's, what, that's the warning, the strong warning that Jude is trying to give them. They're animals. They're instinct. They're, they're not listening. They're just running after what they want. That's what false teachers are like. And then look at, look at verse 13. Oh, not 13, I'm sorry. Verse 11. It's as if the ascendo of all this illustration comes and he says, Woe! Woe to them! For they walk, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain in Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Again, the three. You see that Cain, Balaam, and Korah. It's a prophetic announcement against them. Whoa, Old Testament prophet stuff. Jesus stuff. He did many woes. Look at Matthew 23 against the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's look at these stories really quick. I'm not going to get into them too much, but look at the three stories. Cain, who's Cain? First man born to Adam and Eve. First guy to have a mom and a dad. First one to have a belly button. Never thought of that before. I did, but it's... You can tell your kids, anyway, Cain is born, first one. And who comes after him? Abel. It says, the Bible says in Genesis 4, Abel was a keeper of the flocks, Cain a tiller of the ground. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He brought in vegetables and fruit. And Abel brought of the firstlings of this flock and the fat portions. He brought animal sacrifice. The Lord regarded Abel for his offering and not so much for Cain and his offering. And then Cain, it says in verse 5 of Genesis 4, was very angry, and his face fell, his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, repent. You'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, It's desire to have you, rule over you. You can see the metaphor. You can see like a lion. Do right, turn, cool. Don't turn, sin Crouching. What did he do? Cain said to his brother, come on, let's go out in the field. I got something I want to show you. Verse 8. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and brother Abel and killed him. His brother killed him. A brother like that, no one needs enemies, right? And here's the bottom line. The brothers knew what God required. Abel wasn't interested. Uh, Abel was interested in the way in which he was supposed to worship. Cain's like, I'm doing it my way. So Cain brings offering and, and worship in a disrespectful way, and Abel brings what God had required, a sacrifice. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commanded, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. He demonstrated by faith, we say, his righteousness, 
in his obedience. But not Cain. Cain is the prototype apostate. He came any old way, worship any old way, disrespect, against authority, don't want to hear it. I'm going to do what I want. That's Cain. Look at Balaam. You know the story in Numbers. Interesting story. He compromised with the enemies of God to teach Israel to sin. He, he lured them into sin. He was a prophet of God. He was literally a prophet of God. But he was a prophet that's like, listen, the highest bidder, how much money you got? I'll prophesy for you. You give me enough money, I'll say just what you want to hear. In fact, if you send me $500 this week, I will plant a seed for you out front, and you will have three times, you know, you heard it all on TV, right? All that nonsense. That's Balaam. Spiritual gain, used the spiritual side, the prophecy, that prophet that he was, to gain for himself. The highest bidder. Give me the money, I'll prophesy what you want. And his plan didn't go very well, if you read the story. Uh, he was supposed to curse Israel, and he wouldn't do it. And then he thought up a plan. I know. I want money. I'm not going to curse Israel. The Midianites want him to do it. I got an idea, because I want money, but I don't want to curse Israel. I got an idea. I'm going to lead I, I'm going to, to persuade the women of Moab and Median to seduce the Israelite men, to commit sexual sin, worship idols, and when they fall into sin, God will whack them. And my hands are clean. I didn't know. God, you shouldn't do that. Here again, false teachers. Immoral, disobedient, disrespectful of God, blasphemous against God. The false teachers compromise God's truth in a way that involves idolatry and immorality and revelation tells us that Balaam was judged. Balaam was judged. Revelation 2. But there's a few things against you. He's writing to a church. You have some there that are holding, hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, which is the king, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. There's your false teachers. Cain, Balaam, number three, Korah, verse six, uh, same, same verse. Korah is found in, in number 16, just quickly. Korah was a Levite. I think he was a cousin of Moses. Levites involved with worship uh, in the temple. They're, they're, they're mediators in the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're taking your sacrifice, and the families are coming. That's his job. He, he's told that he's not to do that anymore, and he gets angry. So what does he do? He said, I'm going to lead a rebellion. I'm going to lead a rebellion. And you know what he does? He gets some friends. He gets some people to rebel against who? God's leader, Moses. God's man. God's overseer. That's what false teachers do. Number 16. He tells Moses, this crew, that he put together this cult, this false sect. You have gone too far, Moses, for all the congregations are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, we don't have to listen to you, Moses. We're all God's people. Why we listen to you? Why we listen to your leadership? Why we listen to your revelation? Why we listen to things that God has said to you? We all can, can go before God, can't we? Now, in the New Testament, the Bible says that we're all priests of God, that I can't get any closer to God than you can. Jesus tore down the temple curtain, and we all have access. But you know what? The scripture teaches us about authority, about those in authority, about church authority, about leaders having authority, loving authority, loving authority, loving service, sacrifice, loving authority. But there is some. There is some. Not everybody's opinion is equal. I'm going to tell you that right now. Some people are just like, no, not, we're not doing that. That's crazy. No. And you see, false teachers want to overthrow any spiritual authority any, and attack any definitive dogmatic truth and gospel-centered truth of Scripture. They want to fight against that. And so Korah, Datham, Abram joined in this rebellion. Rebellion ended very quickly. You know how? You know the story? Number 16, the rebellion against Moses. The whole earth, the earth where they were standing, opened up and swallowed them. That'll take care of that. Good, gone. Up oh, there, there they go. All done. Number sixteen. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Their households and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. So we're taking your car. We're taking your house. Taking your boat. It's all going. Zip. Done. And what's so interesting about these three is they were not arch enemies of God, like you read in Nehemiah. Like Cain was the first child born from Adam and Eve that could worship God. 
I mean, there's a uniqueness in his life. He's the first dude ever born to worship God. Uh, Balaam was, was a prophet of God. And Korah was a Levite. I mean, they had responsibility, religious upbringing. They were engaged in religious activity. That's what false teachers do. Warren Worsby, if you've never heard of him before, he's got really good commentaries. He's a good guy. I don't know if he's still alive, he's with the Lord, but Warren Worsby said this. Now listen carefully. Cain rebelled against God's authority in salvation, for he refused to bring a blood sacrifice as God had commanded. Balaam rebelled against God's authority in separation, for he prostituted his gifts, which prophecy, prophet. He prostituted his gifts for money and led Israel to mix with other nations. Korah rebelled against God's authority in service. He was a Levite, denying that Moses was God's appointed servant and attempting to usurp his authority, end quote. I I, I know this is hard stuff. I I get it. But listen, the warning that Jude is giving to this church that you're hearing this morning is out of love, not hate. Because false teachers are deceptive and deadly. They they go to the conferences. They have that. There's a conference coming up next year. We'll see if we even have to deal with it. But... I'm like, oh my word. We're all over again, falling down and barking like a dog. Don't follow that nonsense. That's crazy, okay? Anyway, you you know them. Their conduct, their teaching, and look at finally the emptiness and eternity of their error. Jude goes from three, 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 now to five illustrations. I don't know what happened. He's just like, you know what? I'm getting tired of threes. It was like five in a row. And now gives us five illustrations I didn't, he wrote the book, I didn't. Five more illustration from nature. He's emphasizing the seriousness of the false teacher's errors. Before he jumps into the five things from nature, he says, look in verse 12, hidden reefs, that's what these are, they're hidden reefs at your love feast. He's talking about the false teachers again. As they feast with you without fear. Love feasts were potlucks dinner that the church would get together, they would share a meal together, and at the conclusion, you know, sometime during the meal, probably at the end, they would share the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, they were doing that. And if you remember, they were all drunk. They all ate their food, leave nothing for anyone, and they were all drunk going to communion. Paul's like, that's not what's supposed to happen. So here we see these love feasts gathering, and the, and the false teachers, these false prophets, these false dreamers, these, these immoral men, women, probably men, are infiltrating the church during their love feasts, and they have no fear. They are hidden wreaths. That means they're coral, they're rocks. Some, people, some of you have been in boats, have a boat. They're under the water. They're hidden wreaths. They're, they're, you know, you're driving along, you think everything is going fine, you can't see it, and bam, you hit the rock and you sink. That's, that's what he's calling them. He said, you know, you, you, they don't just come in with a red outfit and a pitchfork. They're under the water, but they're there. They're dangerous. They're hidden wreaths, pretending to be full of love. Pretending to be full of encouragement, they're infiltrating the church and teaching you falseness with lifestyle that's threatening the church. Now, let me give you the five things really quick that he points to. Number one, look with me, shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds, caring for flock, feeding themselves. Now, I, I was not brought up on a farm, never owned one. But I do know if you hire a shepherd, it's not so that he can sit down and have his own meal, all right? Feeds the flock. They're feeding themselves. Number two, they're like waterless clouds swept along by winds. Hey, there's a cloud coming. We really need rain. It looks full. Right by. Nothing. Nothing. The rain never comes. They promise, but they don't produce. They are empty suits, appearing to, you know, they want to bring the refreshing water of the word, but they blow right past you. Not edifying at all. Shepherds, waterless clouds. Look, number three, fruitless trees. In late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. It's harvest time. It's harvest time. Much fruit is harvested, harvested at harvest time. But now with these false teachers, they're barren. They're destitute. They're fruitless. The trees without fruit, they're the barren fig tree that Jesus talked about in Luke 13. Instead, they're dead on the surface and dead at the source. They are twice dead, fruitless and rootless, dead top to bottom, no fruit, no character, no conversion, no gospel. Four, verse 13 to close. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame. 
You ever been in, ever been by the sea after a storm, and you see all that muck and mire and junk in the foam just roll up to the shore? He says, that's them. It's false teaching, false prophets. They're crashing like waves, and they're stirring up this moral filth and trying to pollute you like you see in the shore. And the last thing he says, they're wandering stars. Today we call them meteors, wandering stars. Gone. Did you see that? Yep, gone. Where'd it go? I don't know. It was here for a moment. Had some limelight. They, they, taught, they, 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 they taught false things. They, they perverted grace, and they're gone. They promised spiritual truth. They're aimless, erratic, destined, it says, for the judgment of God. They're like a shooting star. Gone. Five things. Feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, foam crap coming up, wandering stars. And God's judgment, look what it says as we close with the last part of the verse. Very disturbing. For whom all these false perverted teaching, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for ever. They may fool man, but they're not God. Utter darkness in hell. Matthew 25, Jesus said, For to everyone who has will more be given. He will have an abundance. He's talking about a parable. And then he says, But the one who has not, even what he has, be taken away. And cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 41 of the same chapter in Matthew. He will say from you, from those on his left, Depart from me, cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, same chapter. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now family, like Michael the archangel, I'm in no place to pronounce judgment on anybody. Judgment belongs to God. But like Jude, I will proclaim a warning. I don't know when your time is up. I don't know how much days you have. I don't know if you're a a, a place of apostate where there's no turning back. I don't know any of that. The warning is to turn and repent. Ezekiel says in chapter 18, God speaking, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Hell, utter, utter darkness and separation from God are reserved for those who refuse to repent and believe, refuse to repent and trust and rely on Christ alone for their payment for their sin. The debt that is owed to God, you owe, and Christ pays that sin. But here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ experiences judgment, hellish, utter darkness, That we read in Jude, he does that for you. For you. So that you can receive light and be separated from God no more. That table, this table represents when darkness came, utter darkness came over the land and judgment had visited Calvary. Wrath has visited Calvary when Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, died in the dark as our substitute, taking the wrath we deserve upon himself. And as he's nailed to that cross, as the seven, eight-inch wrought irons nail him to the wooden beams, he doesn't cry out, my hands, my feet. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Utter separation, hellish darkness on Jesus so that you can be brought in and have light and have mercy and have love. No matter how bad those nails must have been, no matter what the excruciating pain he endured, Jesus doesn't say one word. He talks about the separation of his father in utter hellish darkness. That's what hell is, separation. Entering the hellish reality of separation from God for us as he stretched out on the cross. You see, God is forsaking the sin bearer because of his holiness. The rod of God's wrath that he suffered for the judgment for our sin is what Jesus cries out, why has thou forsaken me? This table represents that night, that day, that, that darkness, I should say, darkness of night that came during the afternoon when God's judgment came down and was poured out, his wrath on Jesus. 
His body was riddled as he hung on the cross. The bread represents the body that was broken. The cup represents the blood. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. Payment needed to be paid. And he paid it for you if you believe. Judgment awaits. You will either be under judgment of your sin or you will be under the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for your sin. My prayer, my prayer is that you will trust in Christ today. If you've never done so, band's gonna play. If you're new here, the band's gonna play. We as a church are called to confession and repentance of sin. We never stop sinning. We sin less, but we sin. So we need to confess and repent, and then celebrate. I tell us all the time, we celebrate. We don't stay there confessing and repenting. We say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for forgiving me. And we come up, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we celebrate the forgiveness of God. It's a joyful time. But if you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. Ask Jesus, come and forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross. I'm repenting of being my own Lord, my own Savior, doing my own thing, and I'm going to walk with you now. And believe that he died for you. Believe that he went to the cross for you. Believe that he forgives you for your sins and paid that penalty and ask him to come in and be Lord and Savior of your life. And then come and celebrate communion. This is your first day of doing that? Come and celebrate. If not, you want to talk, me, Pastor Ricky, Chris, he's going to come up. He did the announcement. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. That's all we have is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely message. Thank you for your word. Father, we don't want to add. We don't want to subtract. We want to stick to it and preach it clearly for your glory. Humbly for your glory. And Father, we pray as we take communion together, we remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, we ask that as a people, we will respond in obedience to that in which you've called us to do and, and not do, but not for salvation, but because of salvation. Help us to remember with hearts of gratitude in responding to you by faith, trusting you, Lord, that you are good and you are our Savior. And Father, as we continue to sing and worship, may you get all the glory. And may hearts today be bound together in Christ by the Spirit that we may see the glory and beauty of Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen.